0: Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Good Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. So uh, this week, there's actually a big idea I wanted to share with you. There's also a big idea, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. It was tragically, sadly, heartbreakingly not given enough uh, media treatment because of uh, more bigger events that occurred in the world. But this week, you I'm sure you noted that uh, the sitting Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, Uh, met with President Joe Biden, and if you don't have Twitter, ask your grandchildren to help you install it on your phone. Um, If you do, uh, you can definitely search for the picture. It was a picture on the morning of uh, Prime Minister Bennett meeting uh, President Joe Biden. There was an image of uh, Bennett putting on his talit and laying his tefillin. And praying that morning, davening that morning before going to meet the president of the United States, to understand the impact of that from an Israeli perspective is monumental. But allow me to say this: for those people who are a little bit familiar with uh, Naftali Bennett, you may in fact—he's a longer story. I'm not going to go into it this morning. But he's an observant Jew. Um, he wears. In Israel and in the Jewish world, the size and fabric of your kippah, some of you are nodding your head so you know this, the size and fabric of your kippah, of your head covering, identifies you in a certain religious dream. I'll give you some simple examples. Um, the, the garden variety that you often find in synagogues made out of that uh, shiny polyester nylon thing, that basically typifies or symbolizes that this isn't something you wear all the time because nobody in their right mind would wear that thing that barely stays in your head all the time. Um, there's another uh, formulation where you have these large, black, velvety kipot, which is definitely symbolic of the chairedim, of the ultra-orthodox. There is this variety. This kind of small leather one, which is like in the middle. I like being in the middle. And then there is this woven fabric. It's like a, a knitted kipa called in Hebrew kippah sruga. The srog in Hebrew means to knit something. A kippah sruga is generally symbolic of what we would call, for lack of a better term, modern orthodox, liberal orthodox, neo-orthodox. I don't know, whatever word you want to use. And then, not just, if you want to to get into the weeds on this, not just the material that the kippah is made of, but then the size of the kippah also is impactful too, in terms of how you identify yourself. Naftali Bennett is an observant Jew, uh, but he is a kippah srugah, he is a knitted kippah, and his kippah is rather small. It's an interesting choice by him, but I think it fits into his his biographical narrative, which, once again, we won't go into. Um, But what was really, really interesting was, is to have a prime minister clearly of an observant bent sitting in the Oval Office, the first time in human history. And speaking of compromise, tolerance, understanding, not lecturing, But listening, speaking about cooperation, it was a monumentally beautiful moment and message that someone who wore the symbols of religiosity carried a message that I believe conveyed deep religiousness to it, of once again, of sensitivity and kindness and softness. Determination, yes. But you can be both at the same time. You don't have to be rude to be firm. So that is an interesting image from this week. If you haven't seen it online, I would encourage you, after Shabbat, go on Google and you can type it in and see the image of him uh, davening, praying in the morning before his historic meeting with the President of the United States. Okay, let's turn the page now. So for those of you who have been to Israel, I have no doubt that you've been to Masada. You're all nodding your head. How many of you have walked up Masada? Oh, what a healthy bunch you are. Very nice. OK, AB, next time we go, we're going up again, OK? <laughs> um, so at the very bottom of Masada, before you even start making your way there, there is a little museum. It's gotten kind of a little bit bigger over the past number of years. But there's a small museum that is dedicated to um, the people who were the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, to tell you the truth, we don't know a lot about the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a lot of questions about uh, what they believed in, where they came from, who they were. We're not going to answer those questions this morning because, frankly, there is no answer to them. But the museum itself is very interesting because unquestionably, undeniably what the Dead Sea Scrolls represents. It is a narrative, the story, the message of a kind of Judaism that we today know nothing about. It doesn't exist anymore. Those people who called themselves, lots of different words, Israelites, Hebrews, yes, they even referred to themselves occasionally as Jews, not exactly, I'm just you putting it into English terms, but their kind of Judaism for us is completely foreign and really not something that manifests itself today in our lives, which is proof in point that when you think about Judaism, we often talk about Judaism. But the real story of Judaism is not the story of a-Judaism. The real story of Judaism is the story of Judaism's. That from the very beginning of the story of the Jewish people, we know, yes, famously so, about, you know, having three Jews in five synagogues, the ones they go to, the ones they don't go to. We know those stories and jokes because they point to a truth. And the truth is, is that there are always multiple ways or concepts as to what? How Jews were going to worship and understand their world. What I particularly want to bring you to is the Second Temple period. It's roughly about 22, 2300 years ago. We know that there was an explosion of Judaism's. I'll throw out some names to you. The Pharisees. That's us, by the way. We're the descendants of the Pharisees of the ancient rabbis. There are people called the Tzedekim, the Sadducees. There are people called the Essenes. There are people called Karaites. And then there was this group called, in Hebrew, the Shomronim, or in English, the Samaritans. Why are the Samaritans an interesting topic for this morning? First of all, the Samaritans still exist today. There's a small Samaritan museum in northern Israel. If you have a little spare time in your hand, it's not a bad place to go see. Samaritan Judaism, they have their own Torah that's a bit different from ours. It's an interesting kind of academic study that people look at both of those texts because they're both very, very ancient, our text and the Samaritan text. But the real interesting thing is about the Samaritans is that their, their temple, their house of worship, it's on top of a mountain called Mount Grizim. G-E-R-I-Z-I-M. Mount Grizim is the focal point of the Torah reading this morning. On the Torah reading this morning, we read of the Israelites being told that when they enter into the Promised Land, that they will assemble in a valley that is between these two mountains, Mount Grizim and Mount Ebal, Har Ebal. And they'll be in this valley. And they will call out blessings and curses from each of the mountains. Blessings for those who observe God's law and curses for those who fail in it. The blessings are very, very beautiful. The curses are horrific. The Samaritans to this very day, particularly before Pesach, they sacrifice a Passover lamb. And uh, the Israeli television crews every year go up and show people what it looks like. It's a very, very ancient echo of what we used to be and what we used to do. And the reason why they locate themselves on this Mount Grizim is because of the ceremony of these blessings and these curses that rained down on the people. Ancient uh, uh, archeologists, about 100 years ago, basically said this place is Mount Grizim and Mount Ebal. At the bottom in the valley is the modern Palestinian city of Nablus, called in, by its biblical name as Shechem. And they actually, these, these uh, archeologists from 100 years ago, a little bit more, they stood at the bottom of the valley, in the middle of the city of Shechem of Nablus, and they sent other archaeologists on top of the mountains to see that if they called out things, if they could hear it, they could, in fact. It's kind of a natural amphitheater. But the idea of these curses, by according to Jewish tradition, when the curses are read, that the Torah reader reads it in a lower-than-usual voice, The thought being, of course, is that we don't want to project these terrible things that are meant to happen to us. The idea of curses and bad things happening to the Jewish people has been a struggle for Jews to understand and also for opposing religions to also understand. In particular, what I want to share with you this morning are two answers to the meanings of the curses. Blessings, by the way, never have to be explained. Do you ever ever realize that? The good things never require explanations. It's the difficult moments that do. The first explanation of the curses, these horrible, horrible images of exile and persecution and murder and barrenness and hunger and thirst and illness, and penury and poverty. The first explanation I want to share with you, not surprisingly, comes from the early church. In particular, one of the leading and earliest theologians and philosophers of Christianity, his name was Augustine. Augustine formulated a doctrine called the doctrine of the witness. The witness was that the existence of the Jews in their downtroddenness, in their wanderingness, in our brokenness, in our state of persecution, was necessary to be witness to the fact of what would happen when people rejected the teachings of the church. Because it was considered in the time of Constantinople, in the third century of the Common Era, whether or not to destroy all the Jews to forcibly persecute them to either convert or put them to death. And Augustine formulated a concept by saying, don't kill them, allow them to live. Because in their brokenness, we see the truth. That when people wonder and ask, "Ah, should I believe or not believe? Should I go to church or not go to church? The elder of the church will say, well, You have a choice to believe or not to believe. But look what happens when you don't believe. Look at the Jews. You want to end up like that? Augustine also brings in the idea of the mark of Cain. Cain in the biblical story who murders his brother Abel. God then says that I will put a mark on your forehead and I will cause you to wander the world, you will have no home. And wherever people go, they'll see that mark on your forehead and they will say, that's Cain, who was forced to wander forever. It's also one of the roots as to why Jews, according to church church doctrine, doctrine occasionally, were forced to wear symbols. They had the pointy hats in medieval Europe, they were forced to wear sometimes famously symbols, on their jackets, it was the mark of Cain. And Augustine said that the wandering, the the uprootedness of the Jewish existence was the manifestation of the mark of Cain because of of the charge of deicide, of the charge, the false one, by the way, the lie that the Jews had killed Jesus. That's one interpretation of these curses and the manifestation of them, because in part Jewish history, much of it is the story of the Jews being in a broken moment, our wandering, our suffering, our persecution. But there's an alternative answer I want to share with you this morning. The story I heard, and I have to tell you, I utterly and completely believe it because the person who told me this story witnessed it firsthand And he shared it with me. It was from my teacher, one of my teachers. His name is Rabbi Shlomo Riskin from Israel. Rabbi Riskin tells the story of one Shabbat in the summer, he decided to cross the Williamsburg Bridge from the lower Manhattan into Brooklyn into Williamsburg to go to the synagogue to the shul of the Klausenberger Rebbe. It's a famous rabbi, Hasidic rabbi, who lived at the time. And the Torah portion for that morning that was being read was the one that we read this morning with the blessings and the curses and the litany of the horror that would be brought on the Jewish people for being unfaithful to God's covenant. On that morning that they read the curses and the Torah reader began to lower his voice according to tradition, the Klausenberger Rebbe stood up and smashed his hand on the table And he said in Yiddish, say it louder. The Torah reader was a little concerned, but traditionally he continued to read with his voice low. And the Klausenberger Rebbe again bashed on the table and he said, say it louder. And everyone was frozen at that moment because they knew the Klausenberger Rebbe's story. He had survived the Shoah, but his wife and four children had been murdered before his very eyes. They had been shot by the Nazis. He had came to America and rebuilt his life, and they thought that perhaps at this moment that it was finally catching up with him, and he was breaking. And he turned to the crowd that was there and said, I haven't lost my mind, he said. We don't have to be afraid of those curses anymore because they've already happened. Now it's time for the blessings. Fifteen years ago, the Klausenberger Rebbe uh, died. Not long after that Shabbat, he packed his bags up and he told his community he was moving to Israel. He founded a small settlement called Kiryat Sanz, which today is an immense city in Israel. Fifteen years ago, he died, and in his obituary, it read the following, uh, that he left behind a wife, he remarried he had 13 children, he had over 170 grandchildren, and God knows how many great-great-grandchildren subsequently for that. Some people may look at the curses and say that it is a symbol of what we deserve. That is so wrong. The bad things that have happened to us in our lives, both personally and collectively as a people, we understand it, that it set the stage for the beautiful things that come our way and our ability to embrace them. Shabbat shalom.